0: Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of MVP Business, where we showcase leaders who live through their mission, vision, and passion to drive growth, profits, and loyalty. Today's guest is Vinny Fisher. He's an entrepreneur, author, husband, and father of four. He has 20 years of experience growing businesses from seven and eight figures. He's passionate about helping his clients increase profit margins and change old traditional ways of doing things. I know he's passionate about a lot more than that, too. So we're going to dig in and have this great conversation. Thank you so much, Vinny, for joining us today.
1: Steph, thanks for having me. I, I, By the way, it's easy to be passionate with somebody like you because you just bring that to the table. So well, our pre-show talk, I was like super excited. I'm like another level. I can be passionate about the leafs changing. So I'm excited about where we're going today. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't help but bring that energy to the table every time. (laughs) So let's start off with learning a little bit about you and your background. How did you, what was your history before you co-founded Fully Accountable?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a a trained lawyer, right? So I would have gone through education, and I was a corporate M&A attorney with a tax specialty. Like, I lived the big boy world of I had my big girl and big boy pants on doing big corporate transactions. And I, I, I had my own law firm. And in the process of that, you know, I, uh, I met this little, at the time, young internet whiz bang kid who introduced me to the internet. And I fell in love immediately. At the start of that love affair, I had no knowledge of a domain name. I didn't understand anything. Now, I'm not techie. And, I'm, and you're going to find out things about what I'm not. But what I learned about myself is I'm a problem solution ideation person. So I think about problems I have, problems others have, and I set out to solve them. And so if if we go through an entire curriculum vitae of my life, almost everything I've created was a big old problem that I needed to solve. And usually, because I'm so lazy, I wanted to solve the problem for myself. And the problem of of solution of doing that, it it proved to be valuable for others. So that's kind of like the reoccurring Groundhog's Day theme of me. In addition to that, you know, I've had the wonderful privilege of making it 25 years in marriage to my bride, Debbie, who, you know, I've given her lots of excuses as to not stay and she's chose to stay. So that's (laughs) awesome. And uh, we have four beautiful children who are all teenagers who now were in this journey of kind of shepherding them into adulthood. And so I'd say that's probably where I'm the busiest on day in, day out output, but that's my life in a little bit of a nutshell.
0: That's awesome. And I know, you know, juggling having kids, and we talked about this a little bit before, but that concept of, you know, being, being leader, being a boss, being a problem solver, and then coming home. And doing the same thing in a different way, but with, as the same, same person. So that's, that's really interesting. Maybe we'll dig into that a little bit more, that balance of, I love that you have that even in your, in your bio, and it's such a strong part of your persona. You're not just the boss man and this very successful uh, entrepreneur, you're a father and a husband. Um, And that I think is something that a lot of business owners uh, don't always work into their um, their outward persona. You know, I'll tell you, how does, how does family life kind of work into your business persona?
1: You know, I, I, there's uh, there's something I say all the time. It's not mine, so I won't take credit for it, but a house that's not built on a firm foundation will crumble.
0: Uh-huh. And I,
1: when you look at anyone and in, in take a snapshot, look at what they do, and you want to learn about their story, you're going to find out that uh, stability is such a critical component to it. And I'm so thankful to have a marriage that with fear and trembling, is trying to figure stuff out. We don't have a perfect marriage, my goodness. Like you're married to me. I'm a difficult person to be married to. So good night. We have to work through things. And so um, like, but because I, we we have endured and persevered and fought through trials. Like that's something that I don't have to have a road in my business life. And yeah. it's funny that, it, it, it's, it plays out like over and over, you look at fellow professionals and, and what we do quite often, what's taking a hit in one of parts of your life is being caused by another area of your life. So how it plays out the most for me is is there. And like Deb and I are in it together. I didn't understand the concept of being my wife's friend, you know, like I had to learn that. You know, I was in it for myself because in this conditions of the way I was raised and the environment that I would have raised out of or through, you know, I, it, it was survival of the fittest and, and I didn't understand this, like linking up and doing things together thing and Gush Night, like she endures and continues like helping me understand like this Fidelity of doing stuff together, and partnership benefits from that. So my partnership with Chris and Rachel in what we do, not only at Fully Accountable, but we own two other operating businesses and a third one that's kind of growing up. And the strength of our partnership really models off the strength of the partnership I have at home. And then the same is true of leadership. Like what I do in leading our people, uh, I I'm thankful to have a high emotional equivalent. I can really understand people, but I do so much of that at home too. Like, you know, the advice we give as parents, you gotta use your words to kids. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing is true of us as as leading adults. Like we gotta use our words and things like addressing offenses. And like really, you know, I put people over process. I put uh, culture over technical. Those things, man, if I wasn't doing that stuff at home it would show up at work and vice versa.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that I've realized, especially, you know, with COVID, uh, having to have different types of conversations with every relationship that you have, um, just like a marriage and just like, you know, children in your business, you have to be willing to have the hard conversations early and fast and be honest, but not And and try to look at all the angles, right? Like that's a relationship thing that's true in every relationship, business partnership, your employee vendor relationships, your marriage and your children.
1: I'll tell you, I'll give you a great example of that. I always think I have, by the way, I want to be really clear. The diversity part that's amazing in our companies is I have, to use a legal term, really badass strong women that work on our team. Okay. I I don't feel bad about it. These these awesome rock stars outwork me in every category. And so I love strong identity filled women on my team. Now there's things I got to do and how do we deal with that and protect my marriage. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because I recently was reading a book called Sacred Marriage, something Deb and I are doing. And in there, the author talks about women would use crying in a situation far different than a man might. Like to think of me crying in a meeting, something is really wrong or I'm something's way off, but a good hard charging woman in my environment crying in a meeting might be as simple as her version of sweating. Yeah, and so learning that relationship dynamic in people is one of those things that you're talking about as it relates to how to talk to somebody different. So, quite honestly, you know, let's just pick on Rachel, our CLO, who's my business partner. You know, if she's crying in something, it's it's because she's so massively passionately tied to it, not because she's like going to lose her mind. And yeah. and it's that's how you have to learn how everybody does something a little differently.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Some people, like I do that when I get really upset or just passionate, it's like just tears come. I'm like, go away, go away. And I'm like, I can't control it. It, it. My young happen. daughter,
1: Elizabeth, I call her Zizzy. I'm like,
0: hey, if if I
1: say, well, why are you crying? It sounds like there's something wrong. It could be maybe a better question by me would be, What's making you cry right now? Because it could be a positive emotion. It could be a negative one. It could be just like so tied up that that's the welled up emotion that came out. You ever Mm. been like laughing so hard that the second later, you almost feel like you're ready to cry? Uh I do all the time. By the way, that doesn't ever happen to me, but I'm sure it does to you. I married a woman who's (laughs) massively like that. And uh, I'm so thankful to, uh, I I think I've really excelled in leadership, even another level, starting to recognize those things.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the emotional quotient. Um, and luckily that's being um, kind of brought into our educational system in a huge way. Empathy and understanding that every single person is different and what they come to the table with, what what's happening in their personal lives, and also how they deal with with emotions and, and how they show those emotions, which most emotions come up at different times.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so let's, let's back up and, and talk more about, um, about the, the business side and the finance side. Sure. Um, you have an awesome mission in your business to double the profit margin of 10,000 companies. Yeah. That's awesome. How are you going about that? And you say you're already on your way. Tell us. Brag to us. Tell us what's going on.
1: You know, so I think it's, by the way, we're on mission, right? We have hundreds of companies we work with in North America. And so we're at bat every day. You know, we've had record growth. Like during this time, we look like a six year overnight success. But I think the best part of that story that people should know is I'm not an accountant. I'm not a CFO. You know, we provide a fractional CFO and outsourced controller model where we provide that service on a fractional outsourced basis to e-commerce and tech companies. Very clear mission for businesses doing seven figures and above. But what's interesting is I was one of those businesses. I'm not... Cable. I would never hire me to work in this company. We set out to do this, to solve a problem I had in our companies. And I lacked just enough financial fluency where I had some relationship to something other than just gross revenue. I didn't have any relationship to what we kept. Like for me, it was like, I'd make all this money. And at the end of the month, there was none there. And I didn't have anything other than shame and doubt as a relationship as to where it all went. Well, eventually as I started in the stories of how I got there, we could talk about, but I got there and now I have a relationship to the bottom and the top and I lead so much better in our organization. Well, I did that in a health supplement company we had, which then birthed this business. Mm -hmm. And here we are doing it differently. What I mean by differently, it's built by an outsider, I'm not an accountant doing old traditional accounting stuff. And so we went after the high transaction business. One, built some of our own technology. Two, decided that we could really do this work on a fractionalized basis and have a massive impact to the bottom line of doubling profit margins. And so, like you said, we're well on our way. And uh, I think it took an outsider who's good at marketing to kind of look at it differently. And I did. And we do. And I'm so thankful. Our team makes me look way better than I actually am.
0: (laughs) Well, that's it. It's all about the team, right? Uh Um, So uh, what size businesses do you work with?
1: So if you're doing a million dollars in annualized revenue and above, you're our client. Only clients that don't make a million dollars in revenue is we work with agencies that actually serve the type of client we have. So if you're an e-commerce company, you sell anything from water to tap shoes, to health supplements, to dry erase boards. You sell products. You work with us. We literally are your back office. We run the whole thing for you. High transactions. If you are a... of a a a speaker a a guru you have a membership site you have like a community you do digital you're our client you have software you have a lot of members and you're our client if you're an agency who serves one of those types of clients you're also one of our clients agencies typically at a north of a half a million in revenue have a lot of those needs. Uh, Again, we can help smaller companies, but we are an accelerant to uh, the, because a business really needs to change what it does when it's doing seven figures above the habit that got you there are not the structures and process and habits that are going to get you bigger. And we live there uh, because that's where we feel the most called to live. And so that's where we live.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about those habits and structures. Let's start first with some of the most common mistakes or or processes that you come into a business and see. You
1: know, I'd say the number one in our world is, you know, 42 cents of every dollar is overspent either trying to acquire a customer or trying to re-engage the customer you already have. And so what's interesting is going on right now. And by the way, I have a gift for everybody. No strings attached. It's at fullyaccountable.com forward slash MVP business. You can have this for free. So I'm gonna talk about it, but you can also go there and just opt in and get this. I wrote some books about this subject. They're yours for free. But what I talk about in one of my books called False Profits, it's not the top line that pays you. In there, I went on this self-discovery that we also deal with in our businesses that direct-to-consumer companies spend too much money trying to acquire the customer. Now, why am I saying that now? It's a really interesting comment. A couple, Even as soon as a year ago, that may have been a little not heard. And the reason I'm saying that is because we were still convincing people to buy online. The market adoption rate ratio to in-person and online was still lower than what the experts would have thought it would have been by now. Now introduce world shutdown, everyone Mm -hmm. being forced to buy online. So fast backwards, rewind to before this and direct to consumer was doing everything it could to spend a dollar, to make a dollar, to get someone to getting used to buying behavior online. So if you broke even, and you were acquiring a customer that 42 cents of every dollar you spent. Okay. I lived another day. I'm building a brand. Now people are buying online and it's socially and habitually acceptable. We have, according to most think experts, we've accelerated at least three years of behavior of adoption. It would have taken to buy. So now We'll see, but the numbers have exponentially increased as the people who are buying online, which means they're going into a shopping cart, be it Amazon or someone else's, and they're buying a good that it otherwise might have bought at Walmart. And so because of that, direct-to-consumer brands have to start thinking a little differently. It isn't break even any longer. It's going to be the stat that's been around for businesses forever. Four out of five companies close for lack of cash flow. And if you spend 42 cents of every one of your dollars trying to acquire the customer and you will run out of cash because you need to have cash, well, then here's the best bit of advice I'd give you. When we look at companies that come into our, they're in too many channels, digital people have channel envy. They want to be in all of it. The reality is, if you know your customer, if you have a better picture of who you really sell your stuff to, you should get, be in only two or three channels really winning. Now, if we're to test and try to broaden, great. But what we find is people are spread out too much. And they're taking that 42 cents instead of really focusing in on where their audience is. They're kind of dabbling. They're ticking and they're talking and they're tweeting and they're this and they're they're everywhere. And they're blowing their budget, just tipping the surface across too many places.
0: I think that's a good point for, for marketing sales and for general entrepreneurship, the, um, the spreading too thin, right? You're trying to do all the things you feel like you have to do everything that everybody else does. But if you are able to, um, like you said, test, where do I need to be? Where is my audience? What is the perfect product um, for the audience or for the problem I want to solve and then focus it back? in all the ways in your time your efforts and and your budgets that's a really good point thank you you know that's the
1: secret weapon of fully accountable i mean i i love that we have great people i think our marketing message i think our offer is really good but you want to understand the true power it's what we set out in the beginning to do is to have an identifiable audience what people might call a niche and we stand for that niche like we, we get referrals all the time for things that are outside who we work with. And we, we have to say one word. No, that's just yeah. not who we work with. And that's so unheard of that people defend a niche. Well, because of that, our SEO is better. Our AdWords marketing is better. Like who we serve and clients better. I'll give you another secret. How we train our people to only speak digital with high transactions. I don't need to know real estate, manufacturing, uh, engineering services, doctor's offices, we just need to know one thing. We speak high transactions, digital, direct to consumer. And boy, you can build a a replicatable process and put great people in the right spot. Most people know it, they just don't do it. They want They have this fear. And that if you can take that honestly down and look at your addressable market, who you deal with as your clear as mud avatar, you'll spend less money acquiring that person
0: Mm -hmm. or you'll
1: spend more money in the right places.
0: Absolutely. And from a marketing standpoint, you will develop your, your message and your voice to clearly communicate, like not just the words that you're using, but how you're using them to the right audience.
1: Absolutely. How many times you've like been at church or been somewhere and someone's like, Oh my gosh, Hey, uh, Steph, I really wanted to pick your brain. I like, hear you're really good in business. And I like, Oh, cool. What do you need? It's like, I need a job. Like, you know, what do you want to do? I just want to help people. Yeah. Yeah. That's what our marketing sounds like.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I just, and, and that's, you know, I, I see that a lot with, you know, mission, vision, passion driven organizations. They're so driven by their passion that, um, Somebody put it one way that um, they you're you're no longer a business, you are a charity. Mm. Like you can't give everything away to everybody. You still have to be in business for profit. So the more ah. you if you can serve your customers better by being more clear about who your customers are.
1: One percent of the one percenters in the world. Do you know that virtually hundred percent of the one percent community owns a business? And of the one percent of the own a business, do you know that the net worth of that person is 85% of it's in their business? So my mission to double a profit margin, if I can help you double your profit margin, I help you double your net worth. Mm-hmm. Because it's all tied up in your business. And guess what? I get it. We're all so excited about what problem we solve and we're helping and we're we're moving the needle and we're doing all these great things. Yeah. Okay. Some people are in it just for the cash, but most people are really out trying to do something good. Well, gosh, darn it. If we took an attitude of fidelity into our company and actually doubled its bottom line, we would literally massively impact our net worth. Mm-hmm. And then we can help more people. How mm-hmm. crazy is that?
0: Absolutely. And then when you think about it from a a profit standpoint, and we'll talk about this a little bit, um, uh, maybe next, is the the cash flow and profit margin portion of the business, um, not just the the overall net worth, then you are looking at increasing your happiness quotient as well, right? Because then it's kind of like, I was thinking this yesterday, my my businesses are doing really well in, in one aspect, it's still, still very young uh, companies. So every time I get a new client, I'm like, Woo, I got a new client. And then I have to go back and say, okay, did I charge the right amount? Am I, you know, what, am, am I able to, um, I know I'm able to provide the services that I said that I'm going to provide. I know I always will do everything that I can to do that, but is it going to be profitable? And is it going to you know, take me and them to that next level or how profitable is it going to be? Because if I'm constantly, you know, like you said, if I'm spending 90% of what they are paying me, then that's not a profitable endeavor. And I shouldn't be so excited about getting that new client. So it's that constant, um, kind of check and balance, which goes back to systems, and um, and processes as well, like knowing what your what you're trying to achieve, and um, and what your goals are overall. It's not one of just the services
1: we busy. provide that was like a lung for me. Like mm-hmm. seriously, it was like a third lung. Um, I, I never really understood this idea of benchmarking, and and to mm-hmm. make it quite simple, it's a way to. Look at something comparing yourself to yourself. Like, what did you look like this month versus last month versus last year? That's a basic version of benchmarking. And then also against the industry you're in like, okay, that health supplement company that kind of started the whole world going around about this business was doing an 8% margin. When I actually started to really invest in looking at the business, the industry and the type of model I was, I should have been doing about 22 to 25% of a margin. All of a sudden, I'm losing 14% instead of making eight because I started benchmarking and comparing as to what I should look like. That is what you're talking about. Is this, how do you improve? Well, the only way to improve your margin is to know and have a target of one you should be at. So how do you measure whether you're gonna be profitable, whether the engagement's right? Every business has to go through that exercise. And you know, I had to too, I still have to every day. I, I haven't solved my problem that I'm a gross revenue freak. I just have people and systems around that have made me better at it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So talk just a little bit more about systems and, and processes that lead to better cash flow.
1: You know, I don't like for me, full disclosure, we're talking, I I reports are a little bit invisible to the way my brain looks at things. Somehow mm-hmm. you can wow me with a chart or a graph way better than you can with just a, a list of numbers. It's I don't know why the Lord built me this way, but that's just the way I see things. So I pretty charts and colors work on me. Maybe not other people. Well If I'm given data in whatever way it's given to me and someone's given me things to see and has identified soft spots in the company or things we need to address, that critical analysis gives me the room to one, know how to address some of it, two, uh, think of creative ways to impact it. It's taken the pressure off of, of not knowing the information. That knowledge insertion so i get an email daily in one of our high transaction companies that tells me cash on hand dip in sales what changed and if, if if there are three or four indicators telling me what they think's going on all of a sudden i don't need them to be right as to why that's happening i just love that they're presenting me the information because usually i have enough spidey sense to know what's happening i've just been presenting information that's letting me see it
0: mm-hmm. that makes sense Absolutely. You know, one thing that just came up for me is um, it, the, the concept of, like you said, you have, you know, you analyze this data, whatever your cadence is, whether it's daily, weekly, uh, you know, whatever your cadence yep. is, you have the data, you have to be looking at the right data and know that the data is presented honestly. So one of the things that I've seen in organizations, especially when it's department to department, they're all in charge of their own quotas and they are incentivized for meeting particular quotas. A lot of times that incentive will incentivize them to kind of shift and maneuver things to where it's not, um, I'm about to lose my computer, um, to where it's not necessarily honest and true. So the, the data is um, hiding The reality. So, have you seen that in in any of the? I mean, I don't know how much on an individual basis you work with your. Um, customers. I don't actually,
1: by the way, I'm intimately involved in our company, the stand of our executive team, all the things we've built birthed out of the things I need. And so there's an interesting dynamic in business. You're spot on, right? You can manipulate numbers. There's an already an inherent manipulation built in to the small and medium-sized business. What you want to do to run your business financials are quite often different than what you want for taxation to you, the individual. Right? right. So inherently you've got a conflict in what you're trying to do without even adding in objectives of each department. Small and medium-sized businesses, the owner has a flow through to them personally where they want tax stuff. The funny thing is, if that's done right, you get two bites at the Apple at the business level and at the personal level. That was like a big deal. I'm like, wait a minute. And by the way, I was a tax lawyer and I was missing that. So that was big one, number one. Number two. We've learned that if you have an objective measurement, each person in your company, what you can do. I read a book, Roland Frazier turned me on to a number of years ago, measure what matters. Yes, talk about it in, in my book, The CEO's Mindset, which is also yours, that if someone knows how to clearly measure their role for success, then they will be able to stay in their lane doing their job. As financials roll up, the biggest problem I see when numbers are a little off, it's lacking expertise right <laughs> because someone understands financial cadence they probably have a subject matter expertise problem so they're presenting you a number and not understanding the industry so even as nice as someone the affiliate manager and like if, if her job is to report new sales great then show us the new sales but you shouldn't be impacting other parts of the p l let the person who's doing that the problem with good, honest working people at bookkeeper, controller, CFO level, quite often it's a subject matter problem. They know numbers, but they don't understand the industry. And I can tell you so often we're seeing people book things incorrectly, which doesn't lead to the numbers being wrong. They're just being represented incorrectly. So it paints a different picture than otherwise it should be painting.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what Yeah. I, Categorizing and and just looking at the the um, yeah the painting differently can yeah. change the decisions that you make on on a daily weekly monthly basis and then at the end of the year so you look back and in your analysis which everybody should be doing to say what should what can we do differently or better and um and and maybe at the end of the year with a different picture you go what how did I not see this all year or why is it not what I thought it was going to be.
1: And then our industry's staff is guilty of something that I think every industry can be guilty of. Like you know, in the coaching world, coaches like might prop themselves up to be a two-time Super Bowl winner when maybe they never made the playoffs. You know, that's true inside of accounting where people who might be a bookkeeper are acting and saying they're a controller and controllers mm-hmm. might be saying they're CFOs. So sometimes it's not just subject matter. It's it's somebody trying to do something they're not really equipped to do. Like those are different roles. And in uh, and reality is, an honest assessment inside the critical thinking of the organization. You know, we call this person, Mary, this wonderful lady who's grown up with a company and maybe the sophistication of what needs to be done has outgrown her. And I think companies have this loyalty fidelity thing, but now that offices are closed, what used to be the number one objection, oh, we'd like to have that in our office is gone. So expertise is being measured. And I would encourage everyone, as you invest in your business, we started this through process. We started this question through what does a seven-figure business do? Well, you should go back and continually improve not only people, but areas in your business as you grow up.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree. And to that point of Mary, um, one of the things that I... Uh, thought was really interesting in the book traction is the concept of you may have the exactly the right person for your business in exactly the wrong seat yeah they they just you know uh, this happens in the marketing agency world all the time where you have a designer that's phenomenal and you move them up designer designer lead designer whatever and then creative director art director well, they're a terrible manager. They were a phenomenal artist. They were never meant to manage people or to be in charge of, you know, attention to detail and deadlines. You know, whatever it is. So they should um, have stayed a
1: technician and never been a manager, right? And I think exactly. Gino's got that thought on when he's talking about that. I kind of shared my experiences of roles. Harvard did a gigantic study a number of years ago where. Um, And Jim Collins talks about this in good to great, you know, right person, wrong seat on the bus, you could actually be on the wrong bus. That's a whole nother discussion. But the reality is, you know, the average person cycles out of their position in about 18 months. Mm -hmm. And one of the deteriorating factors to that is not clearly knowing their role. And that thing you talked about earlier, you know, idea of like what are people measuring? If they knew clearly how to objectively measure what they do, I, I would argue that they could grow up into enhancing the role, not mm-hmm. needing to switch to another role. I think this exactly. switching stuff is more for lack of um, clarity than it is for anything else.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and and it's it's not necessarily the title that needs to be sought after. Um, so that's the value
1: proposition of what they feel like they're offering in relation to the organization. And Mm -hmm. so give someone a title. You aren't going to change how much better they feel about what they're doing for the company.
0: Mm -mm. And and it may end up being worse. Actually, I wouldn't give Rachel,
1: our COO, the title of COO. She was a law clerk made PM. People have to believe they've earned a title. They feel much more empowered. Hand them a title, they feel overwhelmed and almost imposter syndrome that they're not able to live up to something they're not ready to have.
0: Exactly. I like the way you said that. So one of the things that that I know that myself and a lot of the audience is interested in, you've you've, uh, been a part of building a lot of businesses, whether it's building your own or watching others grow one of the biggest struggles of early entrepreneurship is at what point do we hand the keys to, you know, all the different people that are necessary when you start your own business. So sometimes you start a business and you have a team of 12 people yeah. that kind of walk in the door with you. And then other times you, it's, you know, uh, so-
1: yeah, it's just you, right, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and you're trying to do all the things and you're not doing them well. So um, what is your advice for, especially on the financial side, it, you you know alluded to it earlier with not having the skills and expertise. At what point should you know the finances be um, handed over beyond just end of year taxes?
1: I you improve right. So what what a business might need at the little stage, it uh, it needs different things as you continue to improve. Like, so in the beginning, like I have to figure out as a marketer the sales proposition to make my offer convert? Does that align with the value proposition of the problem I'm solving for the customer? Well, that's like five and six figure stuff, right? Like, Can I get people buying and rebuying? Am I actually solving a problem? Am I effectively selling the solving of that problem, be it a product or a service? that's early stage stuff. Well, during that time, maybe I don't need all the complex CRMs and people doing certain parts. Can I take a lower version of those things and get through that? Well, what happens is as you start to mature, you rely on the habit of those stages in your business. And and as you mature, you don't convert, improve, or upgrade or invest in other areas of your company. And so to me, you, you 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 talked about Gino's book and traction. You know, in CEO's mindset, I kind of walk through this idea of a manager, a tech, and a strategist, and how those people are critical. And then you need all three of those. You do. I'm I'm an awful manager. I can play technician if it's the right technical thing, and I love being able to figure out solution and problems. So I do great envision mission type stuff, and so uh, I live in two of those roles. I'll, if I pinch hit, the third one it's because I have no one else on the team. But I look to replace those first, and then a function of growth and scale is, you know, each organization, you're going to need to address one of those bubbles based on growth. One of the things we make a mistake of an entrepreneur is we think we're like a $10 million business when maybe we're a million dollar business and we want these like five and 10 X things and we're at a cadence. And so I think you have to address the needs that are in front of you. I love what Phil Knight said once in his book, Shoe Dog. And if you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. It's a good entrepreneurial read. He used to wake up, every day having this massive bad relationship to his business because what he said was he was waiting for his business to not have problems. So he never Uh, felt happy when he woke up in his business. It sucked all the air out of him when he had problems. Well, some Kung Fu Panda thing happened to him where he woke up and he started having this, wait a minute. I wake up with the privilege of solving a new problem. And when that light bulb shifted for him, that's such a great picture for all of us to hear because we wake up with new problems. And so we're not going to have everything solved. A good growing organic company has a new problem. And so one of those is adding right personnel at the right time or right systems at the right time. We see all the time with new clients. One of the things that CFOs who are don't get it, they'll go in and tell us a, a company they need all new systems. It's a technical problem. They need to re-automate everything. And it, it it's wrong cadence. Like the business isn't big enough for some of that stuff, or there isn't an adoption. In actuality, maybe it needed to fix some other things. And so to me, a mat- business as it matures has to stop thinking like a five and six figure business. And a business that's a seven figure business has to be very careful that it's not a late eight stage and nine figure business.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm those are really really good points how do well I'll back up and say I have seen that concept of the problem um being the the main focus Mm. like the the and that that um, that focus creates a fear, which creates a downward pull on the business, as opposed to that problem being seen as an opportunity. Because if you didn't have that new problem, then your business would be stagnant, which would be a separate problem.
1: <laughs> By the way, I, you don't have to go past me. I'll be real. I think you're spot on with what you're saying. I think, depending on, so for me, now I see. There are two emotions as an entrepreneur, there's anxiety and there's boredom and both of them are real and they're not going anywhere to me it's my relationship to reacting to them. So early on as we would just have these wonderfully exploding businesses, I was anxious to the bottom line being razor thin. And Uh so instead of like being empowered to fix it, I had shame and what I would do is just go get more revenue. Like I felt like that was the only way I could solve that problem. All it did is feed more of my anxiety. So I had a wrong reaction to the anxiety. Well, take that same exact feeling and put it into boredom. Our like right now, our business is running quite well, and you know things are going, and we have great teams. Well, it's freed up a lot of my time. Now all of a sudden, I I a boredom is a response or a it could be, if seen correctly, as a complement to building something beyond your shadow. I could also over and go create three side hustles because I'm bored. And so those two emotions, massively, it's how you respond to them. It's not whether you have them or not.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna pause right there because I feel like um, most entrepreneurs and business owners don't fully recognize how true that is that it, that it's a constant balance between boredom and anxiety. And we think we don't want that anxiety, but that's exactly why we started our own business. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: people think we're nuts. We, and quite honestly, if you just listed the resume and facts of what we have to do to run a business and didn't put in this is the details of running a business, most people would think we're nuts. As a matter yeah. of fact, there's a reason why it's a small percentage of people that do what we do. We kind of have to be a little bit nutty to do this.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. Yeah, so um my business coach is is really um really strong on mindfulness, meditation and you know mantras. Mm. Uh and one of the things he's told me recently is like just stop and notice it. Just like you were saying with, um, with the, you know, looking at your, your bottom line and, and whether or not it's razor thin or whatever, if you react too quickly, then you're going to make the wrong decision. It's like making a decision based in fear or anger. You're not going to make the right decision. If you, if you make that decision too drastically and too quickly, and you don't stop notice and look at all the angles, then, um, then it's likely it's an emotional reaction that will not take you in the right direction so yeah well, living I, I that chunks of
1: money in the fisher empire if i would have learned the cadence of that sooner and that's why i do this stuff is because like now i do see it i'm in this like significance phase of my life and mm-hmm. i want to help people through the journey of uh, as the leader to recognize how do we deal with anxiety and boredom, not whether or not eliminating it. Like mm-hmm. there's a, there is a little bit of a lie out there told that like somehow we can over, like we overcome, like they don't exist. The reality mm-hmm. is fill in the equation in your story, they exist, It's it's really correctly assessing and how to address them. I tell you every year, twice a year as a leader of a business, I see other fellow leaders take big hits to their cash because of taxes, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of like saying, okay, In recognizing they take this hit, and what can I do to put a second layer in place so I get two bites at the apple and do some better stuff? They'll overreact and get aggressive or do something to drive money in, which may not have been their cadence. It's what they did to respond to their anxiety. And so, what can you do to accept that anxiety? Recognize what you need to do to make sure you address it correctly and and, and appreciate that you're going to have a temper tantrum. That's a real thing. Like, good night. I've had it so many times, and so I'm thankful to be surrounded by people who could. Um, I've let in just enough to help. Uh, hey, buddy, you're something's going on. You got a thorn in your paw. What's up? What did you do? Did this not go the way? And and it's it's not. You have it all figured out. It's we're figuring it out.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And you surround yourself with the people that are, are, are willing and able to figure it out with you and not push or place blame, I think, from a, um, from a partnership standpoint, like choosing your partners and choosing your employees and choosing your team carefully to where you can all be honest, open, and uh, solution-seeking. Together. Do your
1: actions match your words is what I say to my kids all the time. Do your actions match your words? Like you can put a cute little culture thing up. Like you go to fullyaccountable.com and look at our about us. You'll see our values. If you want to know Vinnie Fisher, go read our caring, competent, and committed. And all the sub bips. It's me. I wrote about this in CEO's mindset, which is yours for free. Just go get it. in the show notes. But what I talk about is the heartbeat of the company is you and me, Steph. If we don't know the heartbeat, the number one thing I have is I'm the one who battles for culture around here. I truly put our team above everything else. Now, that means I also put my kids and my wife above everything else, it's the same thing. And I'm battling, who do I give the most benefit of the doubt to? Me. So wouldn't it be great to be surrounding myself with people culturally who look, act, and are, I know, like, and trust because they're like more like me. Now, technically they do something else or they have other things within their matrix. Like RCO is way more of a perfectionist than I am. Thank goodness the free-spirited hippie would have us all over the place. But she <laughs> s- serves a God of order. Or I serve a God of chaos. And But we culturally line up on the values that are massively important to us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to ask you this earlier. So now that's a perfect time to ask you, how important is it? I talk about this all the time. And the importance for every single person in your organization to know the values and the mission and the vision of your company, because everyone will make decisions, whether you like it or not, on their mission, vision, and values. So how important is it that even the CEO, CFO, not just the CEO, but the CFO, who is supposed to be looking, a lot of people think they're just looking at the bottom line. They want to, I want to make sure that I'm maximizing profits, maximizing, um, you know, spend or minimizing spend. Um, A lot of people, businesses don't realize how much that person needs to be aligned to your values and making decisions based on that as well.
1: You can be technically competent in our company, killing it. If you are a cultural misfit, then you get one thing from us, fired. Mm -hmm. And so lots of times, you know, political stuff, things, leaders, people could be technically strong, but if they're not cultural fit, they're a mismatch. Like inside of a company, you know, the heartbeat is so important. And so if the CFO is off mission and it's in like... Because of that, you're not going to give him or her any kind of benefit of the doubt because they don't react or act like you. And all of a sudden, if there's one little thing off in that number, you're not going to treat them like you. You're not going to mm-hmm. give them benefit of the doubt that they're trying to get it in there. All of a sudden, you're like, it's com- everything's completely broken, which is my overreaction to anxiety. Everything's broken if one thing is, which is really not correct. But I, he's so misaligned that I, ha- I, I can't connect with him. Well, Because of that, here's something we do at our company. Our company's big now, lots of people. And so our COO runs our stand-up every Monday at four o'clock. But about every six weeks, we let Uncle Vinny, we call him Grandpa around here, speak to the entire company because there's new people And I speak, actually, here's the secret for any of our team that's listening. I'm speaking to the existing people and reminding them of mission and value. Because what happens is you get caught up in routine and everyone needs to remember, including me, what our mission and values are. So about every six weeks, I have to wash it back through. Everyone's like, wow, that's a lot. Well, studies show that about every 21 days or so, people fall off understanding the clarity of a vision. Well, if that's true, then I need to wash that back through. And then also, how can I expect them to be on mission if I'm not if my actions aren't lining up with my words, if I'm not doing the same thing? And so those two things are critically important. And so with that in mind, I believe that every person we during this pandemic, I have a like a rule. Let's call it the line you're above the line, you're at the line, or you're below the line. So if you're doing everything above the line, meaning you're meeting, you're going above and beyond the expectations of your role, then you might be called like this A type player. If you're meeting the expectations of what was really set out for you to be on our team, and you're a good fit, then you're like a B player, if you're below that line, then you're fired.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't care how technically good you are. Because Mm -hmm. That is one of the worst things that's going on in our company. Well, that's true of somebody who's technically good that doesn't want to grab on to either professionalism or culturalism. It happens all the time. I wish more people in my position would actually stand on that wall because we, we, we would probably have brands that shouldn't have cycled out. And the only reason they did is because of the erosion of the team.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what kind of things are do you talk about in that six weeks conversation?
1: I just like, uh, I'll pick a topic. And so y'all usually look to where we are in our growth mode because we're always in growth mode because we're run by a guy who's a growth freak. And so I'll pick a topic. And so what cycles through might be like, hey, so here will be an example of our last one. You know, studies show that when you hire a professional, you're, you, you, you make some assumptions of their technical competence. What you really want from them is critical thinking and forwardness, meaning they come to you, you don't chase them. Seems kind of obvious to you and I as the leader, but professionals get caught up in reports and things. And so my last uh, meeting was about caring. Do we care enough about our client So that we communicate to them where they feel measured in value that we're reaching out to them, they're not chasing us. Mm -hmm. And so I would have then had a conversation with why that's important to us, that we would meet our value proposition of being proactive so that we are feeling and being caring towards them. And then also it touches on, and then what I said was the rest of it was, that's why we're committed. If we show them that we're reaching out, it, it it checks the box that we're committed. If we don't do that, then all of a sudden there's a box where they wonder if we're just a fancy dashboard or we're really committed. We're almost undermining our own value by not living up to our core value. And that was the way that conversation went.
0: That's, that's really great. I I love that you brought in growth mode and also nurturing as key components to the business, because a a lot of organizations that feel like they're in growth mode, they have so much uber focus on the new client that they, they have all this attrition all of a sudden, and they have this new problem.
1: (laughs) I, it took me a long time, Steph, to realize that having an existing client stay longer and upgrade is far more valuable than the new one. I'm a direct response guy who always was focused on the new click. I, I get it. Well, that's a habit that needs to mature. If you really want something that's going to grow beyond your shadow and really make a difference, you got to battle both.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of businesses also will think about culture internally but they're not necessarily thinking about the culture of their clients and the culture of client nurturing. So, um, yeah, I think those are really good, really good points to kind of ruminate on as well. Vinny, you have a lot of things going on. Like you said, a lot of anxiety about making sure you're growing and that you're doing all this stuff. Um, uh, and you find yourself when you're bored saying, what do I need to do next or differently? I do that as well. Do you have any or what do you do in your daily life other than making sure that you're putting your family forward um, that help you to stay grounded or especially now that, you know, everybody's working from home? Um, what do you have any sort of daily routines or um things like that that i do and as
1: a matter of fact you know you and i are shooting this show and doing this this actually ate into part of my routine so knowing that i had to change my so my morning is mine so until 11 a.m um no one gets on my calendar as a matter of fact i even have some friction at the family level because i believe a house has to be built on a firm foundation and so i started with this journey of self care, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And so I massively invest in learning, equipping me. And so the more I do that, the better husband, dad, leader, I'm excelling in those categories because of working on me. So my morning is a routine of exercise, of you know, for me, my faith in Christ is so important to me. So I spend time spiritually going for walks, maybe sleeping a little longer. I, I battle for eight hours of sleep. I'll give up on exercise to get eight hours of sleep. Not because I'm old. I know everyone can make that joke, but my mind is so much sharper. And if I can have a sharper mind, I get paid for my mind, not Mm -hmm. my hands. And Mm -hmm. so I have learned to really guard my mornings. So what do I have to do today? I had to wake up an hour earlier than I normally would. And as a matter of fact, because of that, I named it and claimed it. My kids what started school late today. They wanted to have breakfast with dad. So I had to wake up even an hour earlier. So what did that mean? I had to go to bed two hours earlier than I normal would last night because my morning is a real routine that's centered around me, not around everyone else.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And I, I want to actually kind of call that out and bring it forward that um, that sleep and, and restfulness is um, sounds like it's like your core foundational value in getting your day started. That's been a struggle of mine. Um, in that I, I require also a lot of sleep. My biggest fear in having children was lack of sleep and it was worth fearing. Um, but um, I everyone I talk to uh, it seems to have this, like Tony Robbins, you got to get up at four o'clock in the morning and do this, 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 and this. And then, you know, by the time everybody else is awake, you've already done all your stuff. And, you know, I'm like, Oh shit. I don't know. I don't think I can do that. And I can't, that's not me.
1: Right. Actually, I don't think it's most people's stuff. I'll be honest with you. I think uh, this grind it, grind it, grind it, grind it thing is at, you know, it's funny if you watch the advent of technology, you know, and you go back, I like to study history. It's such a indicator of what we're going to do. Well, if you go back to the 20s, 30s and 40s, and you listen to Senate hearings and people talking about automation and technology. Well, into the 50s, there was a theory that by all this uh, technology that we're advancing that the average American worker was gonna go from 40 hours to 30 or 25 hours. We were gonna become lazy. We were gonna have less output the exact opposite has happened. We've added more output. We average 55 hours, not 40. Now we've gone up in connectiveness to work. We are like revving the engine too hard. So this story of grind, 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 grind is getting worse. If you really study people that look mindful, that have peace, joy, success, stupid categories of like real fulfillment, They have simplicity and solitude as some of their major, major things they're battling for. I would say it's so countercultural that that is actually worth a big, big part. I read a book recently, I I love to read, so I'm always referring to reading books. I think we always have to be learning. I also believe you always have to be doing something about that learning. I read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and his argument was that we can get rid of a lot of the stuff we could actually be more productive and i'd say this grind 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 thing is is what's leading to some of the awful social things that are going on inside of us personally and if we could fight that i believe you'll have more accumulation in other categories
0: i absolutely agree i want to repeat that Ruthless elimination of hurry is something that I have been working on this last two or three years. And every time I do it effectively, I grow exponentially. When I'm hurried, I just struggle.
1: Yeah, I I love the stage of life I'm in. Like, I don't wish to be 30 again. I didn't understand some of these things. It's just the stage I'm at. Like, and so I turned 50 this year. So maybe I'm thinking about things that other people aren't thinking about. And I'll grant that. That's fine wisdom and, you know, at bats. But if I could pass on one thing to the young that, like, 35, you know, the average successful entrepreneur is between 45 and 55. So if you hit, if you make some strikeouts earlier, you're not done. You're not a one hit wonder. I broke an eight figure business in my late thirties. I went through this mindset issue where I thought literally that was my only shot. Matter of fact, I wrote a book about it. I, I was so jacked up about it. It was really was my first book. Well, here's what I'm here to say to you. It, it, find a way to enjoy the journey not do what I've always done, which is wish to some journey I'm not on yet or a season of life that I wish for that I don't have right now. Boy, gosh, I'd have loved to have known that sooner. And so mm-hmm. I, I'd love for people to know that, like in, embrace the season you're at and, and and like things like presence and trial and perseverance and endurance. And for me, I'm thankful. I'm just just stubborn enough not to give up has been my personal secret weapon. And honestly, even though I speak well and I sound articulate, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And so I've had to lean on not giving up and I'm really thankful for having that.
0: I just wanna, I don't know if anybody can hear it. My dog is trying to get in the- Oh, it's the... good for the dog. <laughs> COVID, we're home. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that you say that. I, um, I think perseverance is my greatest strength as well, uh, but surrounding myself and building relationships is my, my Mm. other greatest strength. And um, especially in the last year, I've found that that's been the most valuable thing. I, I used to get down on myself for Mm. the talents I didn't have, you know, as a person who ran an agency and runs a couple now for the longest time, I would say, well, I can't, I can't do all this stuff. I'm not a, I'm not an artist. I'm not a designer. I'm not a web developer. I'm not a copywriter. You know, everybody else has all this talent. Finally, somebody said, Oh Steph, I couldn't do this without you. I'm like, oh yeah, you couldn't. <laughs> so that's that's my strength, and I need to lean into that. But you know, that 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 balance of knowing your own personal um, personality and what your strengths are, surrounding mm-hmm. yourself with people who have your same or similar values and um, and mission but also completely different strengths so that you can call on them when you need to.
1: I love it, I love it. Sometimes people don't have mission, They're, they can jump on one, they don't know what one is, but they absolutely have a set of values and those should align pretty darn close to yours. And. Passion is something you bring to something. External things don't create passion. It's something you bring to something, right? I love all that stuff you said. And those people line up, they do some pretty magical things together.
0: They absolutely do. I want to keep talking to you. I have more, more questions keep popping up. Um, one is about uh, the interview process for value alignment but we're, we've, we've been talking for an hour. (laughs) So I don't know. I'll skip to the
1: front of the line. Go, go take my gift offer up CEO's mindset. I walk you exactly through how to use your values as a, as a system to, to make sure you're hiring rightly aligned people. It's step-by-step in there for you. I double dog dare you to read the chapter on people and you'll get it.
0: Awesome. And that link, is fully accountable.com forward slash MVP MVP business. business.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. Anything else you want to share with us, Vinny?
1: No, I, you, you've been fun. This is great. I, I just love that, you know, wonderful people like you are trying to help others and I'm, I'm thankful and uh, grateful today to uh, have some of that time
0: you know, thank you so much for sharing all your time, wisdom, and and thoughts. And um, we'll definitely check out that link. I'm going to read that book right away. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and one of the reasons that I have this podcast is to, to help other people. And then I find, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn and to think about as well. So I love every bit of it.
1: Well, thanks so thank for you. having me.
0: You're welcome. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, thanks. Vinny. Hey, so what did you think of MVP Business? If you liked it, please subscribe and tell all your friends. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you didn't like it, don't just leave. Let me know what I can do to improve, who you'd like to hear from, and what you'd like to learn. The mission of MVP Business is to share the strengths and struggles of leaders who have successfully grown their businesses while staying true to their mission and vision so that other entrepreneurs can follow, knowing that the path isn't easy, but the journey is worth it. If you believe in this mission, please help by living it and sharing it. In the meantime, enjoy the day and live with passion.